0: Is the second of our three-part series with Azavia. Back in the studio with me today, I have Rob Emanuel and Joe Morrison. Welcome back, guys. Welcome. It's good to be back. Right. And if you've listened to this podcast at all at all, or just even read the descriptions, and you're not a person that is very familiar with machine learning or geospatial analytics or data analysis uh, writ large, you may have asked yourself what are these people talking about? Do these words even mean anything? And you're asking, well, when can I get involved in this podcast? Fear not. Fear not, friends across the internet. Today we are changing a little bit of our our normal discourse to focus more on the business aspects. Uh, What drives work in this sector? And I think specifically what we're gonna be really diving into is how can businesses be structured around really open source software? This is something that is essential to the geospatial market, certainly something that uh, we at Cosmic have supported since our founding. And if you look more broadly, just ar- across the, the tech market in general, twenty nineteen really could be argued as as the year of o- open source, both from the success of a variety of companies as well as a lot of the discussions going on uh, with some of the big mergers and acquisitions right now. And yet, and so we kind of th- we see all this and we absorb it and we think, well, this is just the way it is. But I remember kind of when I was first coming up. Really, the only exemplar at that time was, was Red Hat. And people kind of looked at Red Hat and said, well, that's, you know, that's, a, that's a one-off. We're, we're not going to see that again. That's not replic- uh, that can't be replicated. And so I think it's kind of important with Xavier here today to talk about, you know, how did you guys get started? You know, so much of your work and your product suite is built around open source, and you've had a lot of success with that. And so I think there's just a lot of questions we can dive in from the business perspective. And so just to, to kind of get started, and I, for those of you who, uh, for the listeners who perhaps aren't as familiar with you guys, why don't you just walk us through just kind of like your, your product suite and just the range of things you do across the open source community and may, maybe how you got there?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So um, I kind of came at this from the same background that you did, where I thought, why? So when I first joined Azavia like five years ago, I was totally confused by the whole open source thing. I was like, why are we just giving this stuff away? Yeah, what's I, wrong with these people? <laughs> <laughs> Rob doesn't know anything. Yeah, and and really, I still wonder that. Uh, to that Rob degree. knows things? Yeah, yeah. about Rob say? specifically. Okay, right. Like, Yikes. how has he faked it this long? It's an incredible run. But um, but a, as uh, as I spent more time around the software engineers at Azavia that are so impressive and so passionate and so creative, uh, I started to kind of get it more or less what we're doing around open source. And so your question was about our product offering and kind of what we do as a business. Our core business, I would say 80 to 90% of our business is building custom software applications for people. And we focus on software applications that have a geospatial bent. That's just because geospatial data is abundant and it's growing at a greater pace than ever. And, and it's better than anything else that anyone else could do. Right. Just per- I mean, that's just a fact. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, geospatial, what, what could be a higher pursuit? I can't even imagine. But... Uh, It's crappy data, like it is just very difficult to work with and requires kind of a cross-disciplinary approach to be able to work with it. You can't just be like a run-of-the-mill web developer. You have to care enough to learn how to open QGIS and, and learn about coordinate systems and learn about what it takes to map things to a three-dimensional sphere that we call Earth. It's, it's kind of an intellectually stimulating field. So most of what we do is just building custom applications for people that don't want to have to worry about any of that junk. They just want to worry about the problem they're trying to solve. That remaining 20%, 10 to 20%, uh, some of it is data analytics. So we have a data analytics team that will take your data, munge it, clean it up, draw insights out of it. Uh, and then that other 10% is re- really research and development, which for the most part recently has been focused on applying deep learning methods to uh, geospatial data. But prior to that and continuing today, just processing it in general, whether it's applying machine learning methods or other analytical methods. So. That's like the services part of our business is the brunt of our business. However, we have started to build tools over the last three years. I've been working on one called Raster Foundry for three years and a few months where we have tried to build an open source replicable engine for munging large uh, volumes of geospatial imagery. So it's really, I, I think of it like the backbone or like the foundation of just being able to take a large catalog of imagery, visualize it, move it from one place to another. And then Rob's work has led up actually building tools around drawing insights out of that imagery. And so those that's that's what I think of as our product offering is Raster Foundry and the associated open source libraries around it. We will take that product uh, I put that in quotes because every time it actually gets implemented and people find value in it, we're building a lot of custom tooling around it. But it kind of gives us a template or, or a head start on building applications for people with this this common tooling.
0: What was the motivation for putting something like Raster Foundry out on open source?
1: Do you, I mean I would love to hear your explanation for this. Um, well we've we've sort of
2: operated as a company uh, in in open first uh, type, type setting. So, and that hasn't always been the case. We've been around since, um, you know, 2001, uh, as, as, a, as a consulting company. Um, and we were sort of an Esri shop an Esri business partner. And, uh, you know, we're working with, uh, Microsoft tooling and and C sharp, et cetera. Uh, and, uh, we have a program at Azavia called the 10% time program where 10% of employees, uh, time could be, Spent towards researching a topic of th- that they're interested in, and so somebody—I'm—I'm I'm not sure of the date—it was before my time—was um, like there's this thing called PostGIS, there's this open-source community, there's this thing called OSGeo. I want to look into the tooling and see, you know, if that might be something you know, a direction we want to take the company. Um, so there were a couple, you know, there was a research project, and that turned into a couple client projects relying on open-source technology uh, to the point where we're like. You know, we're always using open source and relying on the amazing tools that that people have put out into the open source world. Um, we had some tooling uh, internally to deal with raster data and process raster data at, at sort of web speed, so request-response cycles, uh, be able to do things like weighted overlays um, on raster data, and uh, we decided to uh, turn that into a library, which is now GeoTrellis. Um, and so that was put out under an open source license uh, it was a, GP, a dual license gpl and commercial which uh you know our hypothesis then was uh, you know people will use the gpl and then they'll actually buy it you know purchase it if they want to use it commercially that didn't really work out we ended up moving it to apache 2 and uh, the community the open source community around it since then has
0: it, sort of flourished so thank thank you for that i was i, w- I was early in <laughs> on, 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 on geotrellis so Awesome. I'm bummed I don't have like some sort of sticker or something. Like I was there oh, the I first year. You, that. you can
1: always just fall back on knowing that you were there. Yeah. <laughs> no one can take that from you. <laughs> it's only for me. Got it.
2: So, yeah. So at, at that point, um, you know, because we were drawing so much uh, from the open source community. And then another thing, another angle of it is, um, you know, we're a B corporation. Uh, we're mission driven. So our mission is to advance the state of the art in geospatial technology and apply it for civic, social, and environmental impact. So we try to take on projects that have some sort of impact element, but we're also trying to advance the state of the art. Um, so, so as part of our mission, like putting code out there and contributing back to the open source community is like really core to our values. So uh, we're sort of, you know, we, we took on this open first mentality. So, um, you know, when we, w- we won some um, SBIR grants from uh, Department of Energy and NASA uh, to develop um, Raster Foundry, uh, it was it was sort of like the default choice like let's you know start with this in the open um that's that's sort of
1: the reason the reasoning and the context behind why we started jury's out on whether or not that was the right decision but we can talk about that later i guess
0: yeah and actually to to kind of just jump right in on that i know one of the things you know that we hear a lot in just in the course of our work is that the community you know air quotes community is great at not necessarily building, but at least identifying sort of what's the state of the art. And then from that, you know, you can have your whole software engineering lifecycle, right, that can f- optimize that and then figure out how to develop it and deploy it and then have that be repeatable, right? And so uh, that that's the argument uh, as it goes. Uh, to extend kind of your on your comment there, Joe, it, is that what you're seeing so far? Um, based on your experiences, it doesn't just have to be raster Foundry. Obviously, GeoTrellis was, for those of you who aren't uh, super familiar, it was a big thing inside the community uh, not that long ago. And so you, you have a lot of examples you can pull on. I'm curious if you've seen sort of the community or your open source contributions really help drive where you think the product needs to go.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I, I would say we, we talk sometimes internally about what, how do you measure the success of an open source project that that we're either contributing to or maintaining ourselves? It's really difficult because from our perspective, an open source project could be a huge success for reasons that are totally unrelated to the community um, around it. And so one example of that would be like Raster Foundry, where. Uh, to our knowledge, there are only a few organizations that use Raster Foundry besides us. So by a typical benchmark, that would not be a successful open source project. Like we're responsible for 99% of the code commits to Raster Foundry and, and therefore it's not really been adopted by a broader community. However, being able to point to that code as a reference code being able to kind of show instead of tell people what we're working on has been a huge boon from a marketing and sort of business development perspective to say, like, look, we're not just lying about what we're capable of. If, if you really want to get under the hood, go to this repo, pull it down, set it up yourself. And that's actually happened at several large organizations where really talented engineers have set up Raster Foundry on their own and done the proof of concept without even needing us. Uh, but it's a I've way to
0: prove, like, your bona fides before you even walk in the room.
1: Totally. That's not necessarily a great open source project uh, through another lens, though. And that other lens would say, like, advancing the state of the art in geospatial science really requires adoption, especially from people that um, wouldn't otherwise have access to that type of um, capability. And so that's why I think projects like GeoTrellis, which is really a, at this point a set of libraries, a set of tools, and Raster Vision, which may eventually mature into a set of libraries, but for now is really one repository. Those have far more stars on GitHub, whatever that matters to you. They have people uh, submitting pull requests outside of Azavia. There, there is actually companies that have built their company in part on top of those libraries, uh, which is kind of exciting to see because we don't really see it as like a, a small pie that we have to like get as much of. We think. Most of the opportunity in the geospatial world hasn't been realized yet. So the more companies that are promoting uh, solutions, especially if they're tied back to our technology under the hood, that's good for us. So I would say that um, it's a bit of a mixed bag when we're trying to evaluate what, what we open source. And I think in recent years, we've open sourced far less than we have in the past. We've sort of changed our opinion from that default open to if you're going to open source something a be willing to commit the resources to maintain it indefinitely and to build the community around it and b have a really specific goal in mind uh, and a story for how people can adopt it because it doesn't matter how um, like valuable or useful that tool is if people don't understand why it would be valuable to them and how to get started using it, they won't adopt it. Uh, so I think you, you've seen a bit of a maturing of our strategy around open source over time, just related to, frankly, I wouldn't call them failures from our perspective, because they were useful, but Raster Foundry, OpenTreeMap's another one we've built. I mean, if you go to our GitHub profile, Azavia, there's probably over 100 repos there. Not all of them are super popular, like knock it out of the park hits, and we try to learn from those, and, and change how we're stewarding open source projects that we release uh, now and into the future.
0: Do you do you think uh, some of this is just your desire to move more and more in, into the open source side? Do you think some of that is just a product of working in the geospatial industry? I mean, you know, we talked about this on a previous pod, but you know, none of us you know started in, in geospatial. And I know for me, I, I was really stunned when I, I first started working in this domain just how much resources were available and almost more of how it was culturally expected. I mean, I was just looking back, like GDOL goes back to early two thousands, like right before you guys were founded. And it would be weird in some circumstances to not be, to do what we do and not contribute in some way. Like, I don't want to say we'd be ostracized. I, I already am, but that's for different <laughs> reasons. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's just because no one's to talked to me, uh, but that's a whole nother topic. But um Was that maybe the motivation just as you got more into it and people were started saying, Hey, like, why don't you, you know, help out in these different efforts or.
2: Yeah. I I do think it's, there's like a almost odd cultural uh, norm around open source. And, and yeah, GDAL is like a huge, um, a huge part of that because you don't really do anything with raster data. Like Google doesn't do anything with raster data without using GDAL, right? Like it is just such a baseline fundamental tool that the, the first time you enter into the space, you trip on it, like, it's right there. So because it's such a fundamental tool, and there's so many tools like that out there, yeah, you're, you're sort of introduced into a culture where it's, it is sort of expected, right? And if you're not doing that, then you're sort of, like, on the outside looking in, right? And then so organizations like Mapbox that were just, like, we're also committed to, you know, taking our li- internal libraries and putting it out there to allow the, the development culture of geospatial to, to um, you know, to really take off and to be able to put out, uh, you know, open specs and everything. So, you know, you, you see sort of traditionally uh, proprietary organizations like ESRI that are now like, okay, we want to participate in the open source, you know, that people are kind of chasing that, that, uh, that sort of um, participation. And I think you see that in other fields, but yeah, it, it, as I take a look at other industries, it is... Um, it's kind of remarkable around geospatial, like how, um, yeah, how specific it is, like, you know, how how m- much open source and really, really good open source code there is.
0: So what does that mean for you guys? You know, just in the near term, as you have more of sort of the larger incumbent players stepping into this market, trying to figure out what their contribution is, whether they're creating right, their own repositories or contributing to something. It, like, how does that like factor into your strategy? as you guys are, you know, you have your, your R&D work that you're thinking about deploying in, you have some of your custom projects that maybe will inform some of your other repos. Like, how does that, is that something that's even on your radar right now, or is it just something to think about but not really re- react to?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think about that a lot, because if you're running a company that relies on software engineers right now, then if you're really attracting the best software engineers, you have to be realistic that you know Rob could leave Azavia to work for Google for you know four hundred thousand dollars a year, or whatever, and live in you know wherever he wanted to. And I thought we established Rob didn't know what he was doing. Yeah, someone like Wait. Rob. Make up your mind. So, yeah. yeah, someone like Rob, need, but very confident. Break, yeah, right. someone like Rob, but extremely confident and well spoken and handsome, could go and work for Google. Shots fired. Uh, the the point I'm making is that you can't. Uh, and, and really it ties into what you just said, Rob, you can't fake the clout you get from open source contributions. There are folk heroes in the geospatial uh, open source community like Chris Holmes, like Frank Warmerdam of GDAL, like Bory Park at, at PostGIS. There, there are these people that are like mortals that live among us but are famous lossy rob that's rob's handle like you're known for your contributions to Geotrellis. Louis fishgold at azavia is known for his contributions to raster vision the the authenticity that comes along with those contributions it's a way to compete for talent and retain talent when otherwise you would never be able to afford those people's talents because they're motivated by something beyond just a salary. Um, And if you're not offering them the ability to contribute to an open source project, certain engineers are not going to go work for you uh, because they could work for themselves or they could go work for a tech giant for three, four, five times the pay that you can afford. And so when I see those incumbents, those big companies moving into the space, uh, I'm happy because I think all right. There's more open source code. There's more capability that's going to be built for people. But I am I'm also looking at the literally like the GitHub handles of the people that are contributing, because I'm thinking like is that somebody that I'm going to work with in the future? Because you build a reputation. There are certain firms in geospatial. I mean, Mapbox, Cardo, that even the. Uh, biggest ones that have taken on venture capital, have a genuine commitment to open source software. And they have a community of engineers that are respected by other companies. You you build that up over time. You hang on to that reputation. It's not something you can fake or bootstrap overnight. And so I think if you're a big company and you're not thinking about open source, just from a pure talent strategy It's not part of the conversation. Yeah, you're going to lose your best people to smaller companies, uh, or just they're going to go work for themselves. And I,
0: I I completely agree with you on, on particularly the sort of the folk legend uh, the folk legends aspect. I I'm kind of joking when I say this, kind of not that there there really should be like a, a Mount Rushmore. Like either sh- I, I love shirts. Anyone who's listening to this podcast knows I know them. Uh, we can do shirts, stickers. I, I think that's a a project we should undertake. Uh, in a little more serious nature, though, I know when I was first starting working with. Uh, trellis It's actually really cool to sit with you, Rob, on a, on a podcast because I remember for a long time I was like, "Who, who is this guy? Who is lossy <laughs> like, Rob?" But, like because we would just accept whatever you, uh, you and and uh, for me and just some of my other work uh, with Chris Holmes. We just we'd accept whatever was produced, and I just uh, and Paul Ramsey is another one, and I just assume that I, I hope whatever is being uh, committed is good because I'm going <laughs> to accept it as such. Um, and, and and so that, that's absolutely true. I, I think though. It kind of leads to the question though, as you build up sort of these reputations, and then you also have sort of these different projects, right, that have momentum, so right, GeoTrailis grew and changed over time. You know, how does how does your strategy thinking evolve around that? So as, you're, as you guys now, you've had uh, Raster Foundry came out, you've been, it's been getting some traction. Um, how does your thinking evolve? Like do you say, all right, d- if it doesn't get momentum at some point, like, do we maybe change the track, or if it suddenly gets hot, do we start putting more resources in? How does your thinking go? Because your your labor, right, even is it, still is ti- still tied to something, so you still have to. People only have so many hours in a day. Figuring out where to balance their time in terms of committing uh, updates to a particular library over another one that's got a weigh in. You guys, particularly as you span the expand the amount of projects you're you're supporting.
2: Yeah, for sure, uh, it's it's tough. Um, you know. And, and it's, uh, especially in like Geotrails case, which there is now a community of users that have use cases that have informed like where the library should go, but also might diverge from like our internal use cases, right? Um, how how do we uh, balance our commitment to supporting this like large ecosystem of code uh, with uh, features that users are are craving, with internal needs and and, and internal deadlines and all all, all those things? Um, how do we balance uh, you know putting out a project that might uh, not gain that traction you know because it's not necessarily like a foundational scoped library something like raster foundry um, and then somebody makes a pull request or somebody puts up issues and it's like okay well this you know what is the value of uh, sort of maintaining this open source code base that is not necessarily gaining that type of traction or, or, or maybe you shouldn't be trying to use it for XY and Z uh, it's it's. I think it's just sort of case by case basis, and, and we try to, we try to you know make sure that our first commitment is our clients, and um, and uh, but we, we kind of treat the open source community, especially the geotrails like uh, foundational years, we treated the open source community as clients, and as long as it wasn't totally out of left field, it did help direct the project or uh you know what we wanted to do with the project because a lot of the times what the community was bringing. It's like, oh, I didn't think of that. Like, actually, I need to take that into account. So that if the library can't go in that direction, is that is that eventually going to be a direction that Azevia is going to want that capability in our future? Yes. So, so now s- by satisfying the community needs, you're like kind of satisfying your future needs. Um, so yeah, it's 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 sort of it's sort of a tough balance, um, and you have to you know weigh client deadlines with uh, you know putting resources into um, you know, being, uh, being good open source maintainers, which is also really important and, and a lesson that we you know learn uh, as far as, you know, if you're going to put open source out there and you're going to ask people to use it, you sort of have an obligation to respond and say, okay, uh, this was broken. Let, let's let fix it in this direction or at least say, like, that's not the direction we're taking this project. If you want to, you know, if you want to fork it, that's fine. Um, but, yeah, there, there's it's, it's a tough balance.
0: And it's always surprising how much labor it takes just even for just a small amount of responses. And I I know that's something that we've marched through in in, in, in some of our libraries as well. And I can always tell when um, Nick Weir is a data scientist on our team, I can always tell when he's been going too long because he just starts grumbling to himself. He like, starts uh, crying uh, at yeah, his desk. it's like, Nick, st- just take a walk. Just get a good cup of coffee that's a pour over that's artisanal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and artisanal. No Dunkin' Donuts and come on back. You'll be okay. Uh, yeah.
1: Well, yeah, I, I mean, to your question, how do we, how, how do we balance this, too? Uh, th- definitely, there is there's an element of it that's like you're serving multiple masters, so to speak. So you've got the open source community, and that's weighing on people's time and their energy. And then you've got client deadlines, like, like Rob was talking about. We know to the like hour what percentage of everyone's time needs to be billed to client work in order for us to keep the lights on every month, every quarter, every year. And we track that closely. I, I The reason that Azavia puts out so much open source work is that we take that out of time we could build to be more profitable. Like we're literally a less profitable company because of the open source work that we produce. Uh, and yet we have to be profitable over the long term in order to remain an entity because we've never taken on funding from anyone else so we have to balance that and it means that we're playing with a short stack so we're like i I think of it it's like we're at the poker table we're taking bets on open source projects we can't play optimally because we have a shorter stack than other people at the table and so it's not perfect but it is sustainable which we're very proud of um i think I would bet my left leg that Mapbox, which is one of the best open source contributors in geospatial ever, I bet they're not profitable, and I bet it's not something that they worry about as much as they worry about growing. And if you want to grow, open source is a great way to get to a bigger audience. Like it's a, It's an effective strategy. What I think is so interesting is that there are so many ways to build a business around open source software. It works for a small profitable professional services firm in Azavia. It works for a venture-backed product firm and someone like Mapbox. It works for a weird hybrid services firm like um, you mentioned, Red Hat. Um, and so there's just uh, there's all sorts of examples of companies IPOing recently, like MongoDB may have IPOed. Uh, uh, a while back, maybe not. I'm, I may be confusing them with Elastic, maybe that has an open source component to what they do.
0: We need a fact check on this from the producer <laughs> team. Wait, uh, they're, they're not paying attention, never mind. There
1: right. there, are seemingly more and more companies that have an open source core to what they do, Mesosphere, and there's a bunch Hortonworks around like uh, Scala, they're all, like, I remember Googling for this when I was confused, like, oh, there must be some definitive, like, how to build a business around open source software piece that someone's written somewhere. It doesn't exist, to my knowledge. It's very much in flux and being figured out. Uh, I'm just, I I keep coming back to the talent thing, because I why do all these companies with very different perspectives and hypotheses about why open source is important, why do they all seem to outlast companies that pop up all the time with the next proprietary platform that's going to be the platform everybody uses. I think it's because they wind up with the, with the best minds that are working on their stuff instead of the proprietary platform. So yeah, I, I think it's something that we will sacrifice short-term profitability as a company in order to keep the doors open for the next 10 years because we have a mission that keeps people excited and keeps people engaged. So I would I-
0: extend the, the talent conversation and everything we've been saying to now add in the element uh, on top of geo of machine learning or as what we were talking about in our previous pod with computer vision models. Also been a big, um, almost majority of this has all occurred right in the open source. Once again, a dearth of talent that can handle this. I look at something like Raster Foundry and, and, I'm, and I'm curious, this may be provocative, I'm, I'm curious, do you guys think you're just, do you think it's early? You're talking about not as many people contributing or not as getting as much feedback yet. You know, in, in, our, in our view, it's still, you know, we talk about all these technologies just incessantly. But, you know, when we're going out and training people, there's still like a lot of just really just early days of just introducing people to the tools, getting their feedback, just even figuring out like what they could do with it in their day to day, if anything. And uh, and so when you translate that to how does this I- impact what we're doing on an, an open source project, there just may be not that many people right now that either have the resources, the time, or the flexibility, and wherever they're currently sitting to say, like, not only am I going to use this, but I'm going to start giving feedback. They may be much more in receivership mode um, as opposed to... Uh, take any standard geospatial problem where people have been grappling with it maybe for 15 years and now they've just you've cracked a code and they can immediately jump in Mm -hmm. is that is that maybe a a fair uh, interpretation
1: does it feel like early days to you Rob
2: Um, I think I think that's part of it Uh, you know just the sort of market of people to use these open source tools is maybe small Um, I think in Raster Foundry's case um, it's, it's a little bit more about, like, uh, you know, there's there's open source tooling and open source libraries that people can reach for when they want to accomplish a task uh, that are scoped and, and well-defined, and then there's, like, sort of applications like QGIS, right? So it, it's definitely early days for, like, a, a, a cloud platform QGIS for managing imagery and applying machine learning and doing annotations all that stuff. Um, so there's, yeah, there's much less of a community to be, uh, you know, to latch on to like an application, open source application like that. But also I find that the most successful open source projects are the ones that are super scoped and say, okay, this is a foundational piece that you're going to want to use. You know, GeoCharles was like, you want to use raster data uh, at scale or in Scala um, you know, even raster vision is just like, you want to take, uh, uh, geospatial imagery and put it through a, um, you know, a machine learning pipeline. Uh, they're, they're more sort of like the brick and mortar type, like, uh, you know, foundational pieces. Um, so I think that also plays into the sort of lack of contribution. Um, but I think what you're saying is like, yeah, the, the, the mark, sort of the open source market of people that are like going out and, and, and searching for the th- for these types of solutions is, is really small and I think it'll grow over time, uh, but it is early days,
1: yeah. One, one of the great ironies of our work is that we open source almost all of our machine learning work and yet almost every one of our projects is under NDA. We're not allowed to talk about. So people hire the open source people to build proprietary stuff. That's, ba- <laughs> that's, that's, that's our business. To, uh, to a great degree. And I think that is a sign that it is still early days, that people think it's novel enough to matter that it's proprietary. And one of the things that we've talked about is like, if something is really core to your business, like it's your true competitive advantage, in our case, I think it's talent, the people that we get together to work on projects is hard to aggregate elsewhere. And so people hire us, that's our competitive advantage. Um, and so the open source work, the blog writing, all that is just an advertisement of our talent. Like the you you see those things, you're like, oh man, those are pretty sharp people. Um, everything else is not essential to our competitive advantage, and therefore, uh, it's fine strategically to make it open source because it's someone else's strategic advantage. Maybe someone we're competing against, and now we're commoditizing that thing, and so we see ourselves as making it easier or commoditizing this research of deep learning and distributed processing. Our customers, for the most part, don't see it as a commodity at all. That's why they're hiring us to help them implement it. Once those capabilities start to come in-house, it's sort of like I liken it to mobile phone developers, like in the early 2000s and mid-2000s, late 2000s, if you could build an iPhone app when the first iPhone came out, you were a hot commodity. Like that was something to drop everything, learn how to build an iPhone app because you could you know, double your salary overnight. That's happening to a degree right now with machine learning. But then there's people like Fast AI that will teach you how to become an ML engineer for free online and give you all the tools to do it. That's becoming commoditized our business will be at its best, will sort of be at our peak when it is considered uh, a commodity and people just want to build applications around that commodity. Uh, and so we're going to benefit from a long tail of the adoption of machine learning. I think a lot of companies that position themselves as having some magic uh, some magic ability to, to use machine learning, um, they're going to struggle when people realize, like, oh, this is actually more approachable than I initially thought. So yeah, I think I, I think we're gonna have a good time over the next decade as people start to treat it like a mobile app development or a web app development, which if you think about Robert Cheatham, the founder of Azavia, founded Azavia to build web applications in 2001. Um, and so, You know, the dot-com bubble had probably just about burst at that point. It's probably like the trough of where people thought web development does not have a future. That's when he started the company. The guy sees the long game, and that trickles down through the company. So when we see a new technology, we get excited about it, not because we see a short-term opportunity to build a bunch of wealth, you know, by building something and then reselling it, but because we see what our business is going to look like in the mundane day-to-day building applications, which people are always going to need new custom applications, we're going to see what that looks like in the future. So I want
0: to close by going back to something that, that Joe astutely said, which is when he was first looking at open source models right after he joined Xavier, right, he said there was, no, there was no playbook. Right. So you guys are on the spot. All right, we could do this like a debate where you have thirty seconds, right? We, we won't do that, right? We'll keep it civil. Clearly, here. we're not good at thirty <laughs> seconds. <spots. laughs> <laughs> but in as I guess, as if you had to summarize some of your lessons learned from uh, working at an open source company, open source software company, and maintaining projects yourselves, either directly or working with customers on uh, customers on that, making sure they get the most value out of it. Um, what are some of the, like the your top three lessons learned, Rob? You go first. Um,
2: uh, build things that are that are scoped and foundational, and open source those um, things that you can use uh, uh, community input to 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 further, and then also uh, you know prove talent and capabilities through and attract talent. Um, uh, also, be a good maintainer. Like be responsive. Be on Gitter. Respond to issues, cultivate, uh, cultivate the community because it might be kind of annoying at the at the point to have to like respond to a lot, but that will come back in spades, uh, uh later on. Um, and three, uh, uh, I think that's. Uh, I'll end with those
0: two. You'll see your t- you'll seed your time on the floor to Mister yeah. Morrison. Mister Morrison, you have the floor, starting with thirty seconds now.
1: <laughs> thirty seconds. You might actually have to start a timer for me.
0: Um, Give me a second. All right,
1: go. I'm not going to like talk fast. That's All not right. even in.
0: 30 seconds now.
1: OK, I would say the number one lesson that I have learned from, from working on this is not to get enamored with or not to fall in love with the technology, but to fall in love with your customers and their problems. And then the technology will follow. That's number one. People that get obsessed with like the technology itself, they're at a disadvantage. Um, and then number two is, I think, playing off of what Rob said, if you're going to do open source, use it to your advantage. Uh, and that means attracting customers that are great customers and that care and, and are willing to learn uh, and using that open source as an opportunity to educate them rather than as just a, a marketing device. So those would be my two things.
0: That's good. And I mean, if you were only off by 15 seconds, so that's pretty darn good. Wow, yeah. 45 that's seconds. Good. That's the fastest yes.
1: I've ever spoken in my entire life.
0: Well, guys, this has been great. I really appreciate your time, the team and I do. Um, and for all those of you that are listening, we'll make sure to put out some links um, to Savia's site as well as uh, some of the other companies that we mentioned in today's discussion. Uh, so thanks for coming in.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much for having us.
0: And then uh, make sure to tune in next week uh, where the JV squad, yours truly, will be stepping off the field and the varsity team will be coming in. Story of my life as Nick Weir will be leading the, leading the squad for the, the final and third part of this podcast series with Joe and Rob. Until then, take care. Bye. Space Club Rule 16. Things escalated quickly. Thank you for listening to today's show. If you'd like to hear more episodes or be kept up to date when we release a new show, please make sure to subscribe to Training Data wherever you get your podcast. If you'd like to find out more information and links to the different sites and data sets and presentations and all the different content that we discussed today, you can find more at CosmicWorks.org, that's Cosmic with a Q, Spacenet.ai, and our blog, The Downlink, that's also with a Q on Medium as you're seeing here we like the letter q music was provided by the dmv zone and for those of you not in the dmv that is the dc maryland virginia area by redline addiction a uh, big thank you to Kristen zender and carrie sassine from Ikitel's marketing group also a shout out to hardcast media uh, for serving as our studio thanks for listening and take care